Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. All right, well, here we go with another episode where I have the opportunity to meet with an accessibility practitioner. And today I'm very excited to be speaking with Derek Featherstone. Hello, Derek. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Joe. How about you? Everything's going pretty well. As usual, I'm in my home office on Vashon Island, which is near Blink's Seattle headquarters. Uh, where are you talking to me from? I am based here in Ottawa, Canada. All right. Well, it's, it's one of the cities in Canada I haven't visited yet, but I definitely want to get there at some time uh, to check it out. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for uh, being part of this. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, probably a lot of people that may be uh, listening to this are familiar with you already, but I'm looking forward to uh, learning a little bit about your uh your background and, and how you got here, but always a good place to start is if you could just talk a little bit about what you're up to right now. Yeah, so right now I am the VP of Product Accessibility and Inclusive Design at Salesforce. I started here in mid-January of this year of 2022 um, and uh, loving it. You know, it's a wonderful place to work and have a great team surrounded by by a load of people that that care really deeply about accessibility. So, uh, super happy to to be here right now. But um, you also you're uh, you know a lot of people may know uh, you from uh, your contributions to the community through uh, you know quite a lot of uh, training programs and things like that. Uh, are are you still involved in those areas? Uh, a little bit less frequently now, mostly because, you know, the, things changed in uh, in 2020 and, and I haven't really traveled all that much, although I still do quite a bit of, uh, you know, conference speaking or, or have done over the years and, and put together workshops and that sort of thing. And and I still do that um, just definitely not as frequently right now, although I am getting to the point where where I think, you know, I'm kind of ready to begin another wave of, of traveling a little bit more and speaking at conferences again and, and, and doing workshops. Um, I spent a lot of that time or some of that time, the, some of the time that I spend doing that kind of work, I, I do that internally at, at Salesforce and uh, not really doing a, a whole lot in terms of workshops publicly right now, but that may change over the next little while. Well, the pandemic certainly did change the dynamics for a lot of things. Uh, the CSUN conference this year was the first uh, physical event I'd been to in probably two years. So it was uh, it was nice to uh, get back out there and participate in that. Yeah, um, I'm sure your uh, activities in sales sports uh, keep you busy uh, on a regular basis, uh, but are you able to talk about maybe any of the things that kind of make up your kind of, uh, 
uh, week in the life for uh, for Derek there, or or possibly talk a little bit about how accessibility is structured within the organization. Are you part of an overarching uh, group, or or uh, do you get in with individual divisions or product groups? Yeah, so I'll I'll give you kind of the the brief high level thing, and I think this is an interesting piece um, when it comes to Salesforce. Our group, the product accessibility and inclusive design team, is actually part of our Office of Ethical and Humane Use. Um, now that's still part of of uh, our product organization, which is which is often where accessibility sits from a from a, an organizational perspective, but but our work being so closely tied to to ethics um, and and that sense of responsibility actually is really quite interesting i've never really seen it done or or heard of it being uh situated within uh, an office such as like an office of ethical and humane use so i i won't go into to too much details but that that kind of situates where we are the the thing that you know, I would say I spend a lot of my week doing is a lot of work connecting to other executives and other product people around the organization, helping them to move forward in terms of accessibility, because lots of teams don't really have a good plan or have some of the insights that they need, or maybe in some cases, it's just awareness that they don't, they don't have the same awareness of accessibility as other teams. And so we we want to move everybody in the same direction. And um, so I spend a lot of my my time uh, investing in connecting with other people and and working with them to help them understand not, not fine-grained requirements, although sometimes I do get involved with specific, you know, specific bugs or debates or questions that come up around uh, or something really specific and technical. Quite often, though, it's really around big picture requirements and understanding what we need to do as an organization or as product teams that are working on accessibility in order for us to succeed. So a lot of my a lot of my time is spent working in on those things and and thinking about accessibility strategically and and enacting that strategy with uh, with the help of our partners throughout the organization. Well, uh, I. I... We, I'd like to uh, talk with you a little bit more uh, about your uh, your current or most recent work. But one of the things I like to do with this uh, program is to find out how people uh, made their way to where they are today. Um, accessibility is, is still one of those areas where uh, most people don't find their way into it through a formal education program. And so it tends to be something from lived life or a serendipitous event in our our work life. So maybe let's go back uh, into the past for you. And where did you first start to uh, uh, realize this might be a profession you'd be interested in? Yeah, I'm happy to happy to dig in a little bit there. And and there's a you know there's a long uh, long story behind it. And I will you know kind of go through the abridged version, and then feel free to you know ask a, a little bit more about certain areas, but. For for me, there's kind of a confluence of of events of things that uh, I've been involved with over the course of my life. Uh, I have a disability myself. I was born with a with a club foot, um, which now that I am 
51 is actually starting to uh, have more impact on me than than it did in my in my younger years. Uh, the the flexibility in my left ankle is is you know not really there, and that, that um, I have some flexibility, but probably about two thirds of what I have in my right ankle, um, and that has surprising impacts on maybe on the way that I that I walk or the way that I feel pain up through my leg. Uh, my left leg is actually not the same size as my right leg. My right leg is significantly stronger uh, because I think I've over the course of 51 years, you know, there's, I was in a cast for uh, quite a bit of time for the first, I think, you know, I, I'm going to say 18 months of my life. And even later I had surgery at three to release the club foot. But being in that cast actually has an impact on early muscle development and that kind of thing. And there may be some other other reasons, but um, my right leg is significantly stronger. And that actually creates some imbalances that that I notice in the workday and that I actually even see in the screen right now that I need to sit up and try and balance myself out a little bit more because I'm I tend to be I'm a little bit Im imbalanced. Um, that I that doesn't have a massive impact on me now, but I assume that at some point in the future I I may require accessible parking or or something. I'm not not really sure what that what that future holds for me. Uh, I do notice it more now, just in terms of uh, a little bit more pain than I, I used to get. Um, so so that's that's like you know point one. I, I also as I was growing up, my my grandfather had a stroke in the mid 1980s. And so I spent quite a bit of time just seeing seeing the barriers that he uh, that he experienced. Uh, I spent time living with my grandparents uh, on you know I think every every summer as I was working in the city kind of thing and uh, always needed to help him with certain things you know making sure that as he was going up the stairs that he wasn't getting his toe caught on the stairs and and falling down and that kind of thing and helping him into the car and out of the car. Because you know the the they had a low car and the, there wasn't really a whole lot in terms of accessible transportation and uh, so there was a lot of things that I experienced there with him and and him trying to maintain his independence despite having a stroke. When I when I was going through school, I actually wanted to be a teacher, and I I was a teacher for uh, for five years. I started teaching my my first classes in 1993, teaching high school. And as I was teaching and and learning about about um, teaching people, I started to understand a little bit more about um, multiple intelligence theory, which isn't really a great word for it, but does kind of have or taps into the notion of people learning in different ways. And that really resonated for me that the messages that I was trying to teach my students when I was teaching high school biology, chemistry, and computers, those messages were for everybody, not just for the people that were already, you know, sciencey, mathematical, um, you know, or you know, already kind of headed in that direction. If I wanted to teach people and have um, young teenagers turn into responsible citizens, that had a background in science and could think with that science-based lens, then I needed to make sure that the lessons I was teaching resonated for everybody. Um, and so I would I would do things like I would get 
some of the students that were more focused on the arts, I would get them to write poetry uh, about science concepts as a way to demonstrate some of the the ways that they were understanding things. Uh, and I, I tried to get creative with that and, and really tried to make sure that the messages became a thing that were for everyone. And so when I started getting into the web, that relationship to accessibility about this being for everyone really, really connected with me. So I, I started working on the web when I was teaching. I actually started started creating web-based resources for, for my students and for uh, my, you know, my co-teachers and, and going through that in, in the mid 1990s was like, you know, the heavy browser war era, era where we were find, like we were using Internet Explorer 3 and Netscape Navigator Gold 3.2 and uh, and and there was differences between the browsers. And so when I was creating things and I couldn't get them to show up in one browser versus another, that led me down a path of figuring out why. Um, and that led me to concepts like validation of HTML, uh, because that was a good way to ensure that my HTML that I was writing by hand was was nested properly. Because if you were writing something for, uh, if you were creating a table, for example, and you missed a closing uh, table row tag or a closing table tag, or you nested something incorrectly, Netscape 3.2 just showed a blank page. It didn't render the entire page because your HTML was not well formed. So that was a thing that where validation became a thing right away for me. And, and validation led me also to learn about concepts like missing alt text and form labels and, and form labels that were connected to their uh, to their form fields by the, the the for attribute and the ID. So that that validation aspect of it became really important and it exposed me to some accessibility principles very early on that that actually led me more into accessibility. And so as I started to create more web-based resources, accessibility was just a natural thing. It felt obvious to me and and a thing that we we wanted to make sure that that was part of everything that we created. Everything needs to be accessible. I eventually left teaching and started my own web company in 1999. And I, I was not only building websites, uh, I was also teaching people how to build websites. It made sense to me to use my teaching background to do that. And so I've been teaching and, and building websites since, uh, since then professionally. And that was something where it, it became really clear to me that there were not a lot of people that understood or that were talking about or were encouraging accessibility as a, as a practice, as part of what we do. And so it was there from kind of the moment that I started and it was something that I've just been trying to share over and over and over again. And I think in, you know, in, in probably around 2005, about six years into it, I started to get invited to some conferences and people were asking me specifically to speak about accessibility because they were seeing that it was becoming increasingly important and they wanted people that could, you know, that could, could guide people that could inspire people. 
and and most importantly, teach people so that they were learning things about accessibility. And so I was I was all in on that because I wanted to keep teaching and using my teaching background. So when you put all of that together, that ultimately led to in around 2004, 2003, 2004, 2005, where I just really started to focus on the accessibility side of things. And gradually over time, that's what we became. I, I created uh, Simply Accessible out of that. That was my, you know, my company that we we grew and, you know, did did lots of very design centric accessibility work, very user focused access accessibility work. And and that led to a point where ultimately we got acquired by Level Access in 2018. Uh, and I was chief experience officer there for four years. And then uh, that's that's kind of how I came, ended up here over time, just kind of that accessibility continued to grow as as my focus. And that's led me to where I am here. I said I was going to give the short version. I think I gave the long version. So I hope that's all okay. Uh, yeah, uh, no, that, that's great. But uh, you 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 went through a lot of things. So let me just uh, you know check back with uh, some of it, you know, just with a couple of comments and uh, question. Of, you know, first of all, thanks for uh, sharing the information about your your own physical challenges. Uh, you know, I think that. That always helps us uh, have a, a you know broader understanding of of what's involved in this field. And then the uh, I hadn't known about you being a, a a teacher, but you know all the online classes and the things that you do have done at conferences have all been really uh, you know very good instructional activities. So I guess that makes sense that you had that uh, background. Or do you not feel like that that, that contributed to it? Oh, it, it's, I, I think it, I think it has for sure. I mean, it's, it's at the heart of, of most of the things that I do that I want to, you know, that I want to teach. And, and I, I tend to think about things in, in a very specific way when I'm, when I'm creating something, whether it's a conference talk or, a, you know, one of my courses that's on LinkedIn learning, I go through a process where I'm thinking about the, the learning outcomes that I'm after. And it's, it's, I break it down into these four categories. There's things that I want people to know. There's things that I want them to do or be able to do. So that's like the knowledge and awareness, but there's also skills and behaviors that, that we need to encourage. There's things that I want people to feel. And then there's things that I want them, people, I want people to be. Right, so I go through this framework of no do feel be, and it's ultimately lets me create this overall picture of this is what I'm aiming for here, and and so it's always a combination of things that I just want people to know, things that I want them to do, or actions that I want them to take, things that I want them to feel. And in, in you know, in a lot of ways, I might say if I'm doing a, a conference talk, I might write down that I want people to. Uh, feel empowered to take action tomorrow, right? Like I want them to be able to uh, go and and take action and improve their practice tomorrow using X technique or something like that. So there's there's things I want them to feel empowered. Uh, and then the things that I want them to be tend to be kind of those aspirational things. I want them to be a responsible designer or I want them to be a a, a more inclusive researcher 
that includes more people with disabilities in the research that they're doing. So I've got those those ideas. And I think that comes from my teaching uh, background because that's ultimately how we design learning activities and curriculum. It, it's focused on uh, those kind of facets of, uh, of, of learning outcomes. So I think it's heavily, heavily influenced by my background as a teacher. The other thing that uh, then you got to the point where uh, you were doing the uh, your uh, website consulting uh, and accessibility work. Uh, so early 2000s, that's kind of when I, you know, I think of the time where a lot of the pieces were in place to start turning this into, you know, a profession or having some momentum where some some real improvements were being made with the the WCAG having been developed by the W3C and the legislative uh, uh, requirements coming into play. How did it feel for you at that time? Were you kind of aware that there was this uh, uh, practice building or were you more or less just reacting to things going on within your own uh, consulting with your clients? It's a little bit of both. You you could tell, like it, it was, it felt and that's a very kind of vague way of talking about it but you could feel the, a groundswell and that more and more people that it was gaining momentum that it was going to be more and more important um and and ultimately it was yeah there was definitely some reaction to what was being asked for but we got to a point where we were reacting like yes there's more demand for this and then we turned that into, okay, there's no more reacting to this. Let's be proactive about it. And here's what we're going to drive and create as a company. And, and so that was, uh, you know, it was kind of a combination of both of those things. But you could definitely tell that it was going to continue to become important. I, I think I wrote an article once about, um, you know, what, what steps you need to take to become an accessibility consultant. And it, you know, in the very early days, it was literally go get a business card and write your name on it and accessibility consultant underneath. Because in the beginning, none of us were, were trained for this. There was no curriculum, there were no programs, there wasn't anything that like obviously led to this as a career path. And, and wow, that has changed over the last uh, 23 years, it's, it's, definitely different now there are there's programs out there there is uh certification programs out there there's there's just a lot more uh understanding about accessibility and and there's positions at organizations like accessibility product managers and if you i think linkedin posted something about this uh just within the last couple of weeks they have an entire uh section when you are adding your job to your LinkedIn profile, there are a group of, I, I think it's maybe 20 or maybe it's not quite that many, but there's a list of accessibility specific jobs that exist in LinkedIn now. Um, and, and that just further goes to show that this is going to continue to be important when, when a platform like LinkedIn adds that to their, you know, to their product, to their service, that that's saying something that's in that's a big recognition of of uh, the importance of accessibility and 
in the space in which we uh, in which we all work. So, uh, you know, it's definitely very different now than it was when I first started out. Yeah, I've uh, I've noticed that uh, myself. Uh, I kind of keep up on things uh, along those lines. Uh, I teach at the University of Washington, so I'm always kind of interested in that in terms of helping my uh, students understand potential skill opportunities. Uh, but getting back to uh, you, you know your journey, kind of the next part that you mentioned was having your uh, uh, your own business that then was uh, acquired by Level Access. So like in that period um, where you're, you know, actively supporting clients, um, I'm, I'm just curious about like how you felt in terms of, uh, you know, where you were making your, your biggest uh, impact. Uh, it, being in the consulting area myself, sometimes I think that the majority of interest comes from that uh, desire for compliance or not to run into legal issues, uh, the auditing portion, whereas uh, I, I tend to feel that getting involved early and understanding at the research and design level can kind of take care of that if you you know follow through the process. But I don't know, maybe just talk a little bit about you know, what that dynamic was for you and, and your experiences. It changed over time. And, you know, the, the demand in the beginning or the work that we were doing in, in a lot of ways was very much, you know, along the lines of, yes, we'll consult with you. And yes, we can do, uh, you know, a, an assessment of where you are and where your product is and we can help you you know, we can help you fix that. But what we found was that over time, organizations started to realize that accessibility is not successful if you're thinking of it as a one-time thing. And, and so what we started to see was a little bit of a transformation. And what we started to see in terms of that change was organizations understanding or or us helping them to understand that they needed to move from project to program, that they couldn't be just thinking of accessibility as a project that they're going to do for a year and then they don't need to touch it again for like six years. Right? It, it just doesn't doesn't work that way. It's not successful that way. So that was the the biggest transformation in in mindset, and that was more focused on you know helping helping our clients understand that a project focus is fine for that project, but that it ultimately needs to bubble up to something bigger. It needs to be thought of programmatically, systemically as a, a big picture thing that is part of the strategy of an organization moving forward, where you need to be strategic about it and think of it in scaling terms, think of it in program terms, and think thinking of it in repeatability terms uh, that's the only way that it that you can be truly successful with it in the long run. That yeah, that philosophy of uh, iteration and always uh, continuing to move forward, I think, is really important. Uh, you know, one of the things that I always like to ask in this uh, program is kind of open ended. It's kind of you know maybe you reflecting on your you know your overall career in this area. I, I know when I think back to when I was starting on this, uh, like around 1998, you know, uh, thinking ahead, I 
in some ways, I think I, I would have thought things would have been further along than they are. In other ways, I'm like amazed at what technology has been able to do uh, you know, to support uh, with assistive technologies. Um, I just wonder maybe if you have any thoughts about, you know, areas where you think there's gaps or where there's been amazing achievements or, you know, kind of where you're thinking, uh, you're hoping things will go to in the future. We've done a tremendous job on the engineering side of things and on the code side of things, but I still think there's a gap with understanding that accessibility is not just about the web content accessibility guidelines. The W3C even calls it out or the, you know, the, the education and outreach working groups and, and the web accessibility initiative itself, they actually say in their document, in their documentation, this is, this is a great starting point. I'm super paraphrasing here. They don't say exactly this, but they, they often refer to uh, certain concepts and they'll say, make sure that you do re user research to understand the full impact of this on people with different disabilities. Um, there's, there's people with, with, um, disabilities when you think back to WCAG 1.0 or even 2.0 there were lots of people with different disabilities that were not well represented in those early iterations of accessibility and so there's lots of work going on right now with you know with 2.1 and with 2.2 and even eventually whatever the next uh, the next version of it is that is starting to take into account things like uh, different cognitive function, different cognitive disabilities that just weren't in there. We're not even on the radar or, you know, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, they might have been on the radar, but we didn't have good guidance or good ways of expressing those things or thinking about them or maybe objectively testing them. Uh, and, and so there's, there's a big gap still when we think about accessibility holistically because most organizations tend to think of it as an engineering function as an engineering problem to be solved and there's there's design that is there tangentially but um, there's a lot of work to continue to do on the design side on the research side that takes us beyond this mode of of compliance versus making things really functional really easy to use where we're creating great experiences so that people with disabilities don't have a minimally compliant interface where everybody else that doesn't have a disability gets something that's seamless and pleasing and a pleasure to use, right? Like those are the words that we use when we're thinking of creating great experiences for everybody else. And yet, we're still in a mode where we're barely lucky to get to minimally compliance. And I'm talking industry. I'm not talking, you know, about any specific organizations or companies, but the average, if you look at the web a million, we don't even hit the, we don't even hit compliance for, you know, so many, so many websites. And, and so that to me is a, is a gap. And, and that gap is born from, I personally think not including people with disabilities as part of the process. 
Uh, and so the more that we can do that and the direction that I think the industry is going to continue to move is engaging people with disabilities as co-creators, as um, insightful contributors to the design problems that we are trying to solve, to the, um, you know, to, to be collaborators in the ways in which we create. And, and that to me is, that's where I think the industry goes. Despite all the things that we've accomplished, there's incredible things. I look at the things that we can do with ARIA right now that we just, we had to find ways of faking it in, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. We, there was no such thing as a live region back then, right? As, as something that would automatically announce this thing out as a status message. So we, back in the day, we had to create things that faked that. And, and they were actually in some, excuse me. And they were actually in some ways disruptive in that getting that feedback to a user on what was happening in the interface meant that we needed to take focus away from the thing that they were doing and then hope that we put them back in the right place after that message came up. Well, we don't, we don't really need to do that quite the same way anymore because we've got accessibility mechanisms that we can use programmatically that do a pretty good job of getting us to where we need to be to represent that interface in a non-disruptive way. So the, that, that is incredible in itself. And I find it amazing that we, you know, we have single page apps that power a lot of the world and that can be very highly accessible to a lot of people. Uh, we still have a long way to go, but that's still that's still an accomplishment worth uh, worth celebrating that that can be done. Now it's a matter of getting getting everybody on board and and increasing the frequency with which that success happens. Well, I, I, was, that's a great message that you had uh, had here for us at the end about. Uh, just considering quality and the uh, better inclusion and collaboration to uh, truly make uh, accessibility continue to move forward. Um, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. Uh, we covered quite a lot in a relatively short amount of time. So I, I wanna thank you for uh, your contribution here and uh, look forward to hopefully uh, seeing you in the physical world at some time, some point in the future. That would be that would be wonderful, and and uh, thank you for for the invite and the opportunity to share with people. I really really appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot, Derek. Thanks, Joe. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. 
Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design. We can move existing designs to development in a sprint, and maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X.com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.